Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. I'm so excited to welcome my guest. It's Deborah Oswald. She is a screenwriter, playwright, and fiction author. She was co-creator and head writer for the series one to five of the award-winning TV series Offspring and won numerous awards for those. Her other television credits include Police Rescue, Palace of Dreams, Secret Life of Us, and others. But we're here to talk about the stage. She's bringing her show, two of her shows, to the Ensemble Theatre. Her stage plays have been produced around Australia, including Gary's House, Sweet Road, and The Peach Season, all shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Award. And her play, Dags, has had many Australian productions. Gary's House has been performed in translation in Denmark and Japan. Wow. And Mr. Bailey's Minder broke the Griffin Theatre's box office record in 2004. It's toured nationally and is back to hit the ensemble stage with the gorgeous John Gaydon, as well as Rachel Gordon, Albert Mwangi and Claudia Ware. She's also bringing back Is There Something Wrong With This Lady, which sold out in April at Griffin and it's coming back to the ensemble so from the from the 18th of September. So much to talk about. Welcome, Deborah. Hi, thanks, Regina. Thanks for coming on. So let's start with Mr. Bailey's Minder. Who is Mr. Bailey? So Leo Bailey is Australia's greatest living artist, but he also happens to be a kind of nasty old drunk. <laughs> um, and he lives in a sort of fabulous shack on a harbour cliff being looked after by a series of living carers. And so the latest living carer is a young woman called Therese who's in a bit of trouble is kind of quite desperate. So so the play is about the relationship between the two of them um, plus his relationship with his eldest daughter and the carpenter who comes to do some work on the house. I always like to have a man with a tool belt in my work. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think one of the things that got me thinking about it was it's a story about there are so many kind of great writers, painters, musicians who were absolute bastards in their personal lives and yeah. did a lot of damage to the people close to them but still created great works of art. And, and it's interesting because in the 20 years since the play was first on, I think that that question has become even sharper. Mm. How do we how do we make sense of the work that we love and and, and weigh that against the sort of, destructiveness of those individuals um, and, and how much allowances were made for them and they behaved badly. Um, mm. But the play is also about, you know, um, one of my perennial themes, which is the way parents can damage their children mm. and the way as adults we can um, kind of find other relationships, surrogate parent relationships to hopefully repair some of that damage so there's kind of some of my old obsessions whirling in there plus this interest in the artist versus the person Mm. was there a particular person that you based him on initially um no uh, not really and 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 it's interesting because when the play was first on lots of people came over and said they thought they knew who it was and there was a whole range of people so i suppose the truth (laughs) is look actually actually the truth Mm. is the character not the the fact that he's a painter is based on my father-in-law. So, oh. in, you know, weirdly, 
quite recently, I found a letter that I wrote to to my now partner. Oh, oh, 40 years ago? That's how old I am. 40 years ago, um, <laughs> describing the the story and the kind of emotional dynamics, which was kind of, which I was borrowing from his father, who was a kind of charismatic man, but a terrible drunk and could be very destructive. Um, and it's interesting that that idea was in this letter, but I didn't find a play for it to live in until 20 years later, when the idea of making him a painter made the story sing. And that's a really common experience for me that I'll write something in my notebook, but it won't find the other parts of it for many, many years. Yeah. So it's kind of my (laughs) father-in-law. When you say there's an alcoholic, immediately you think, oh, this is going to be a comic character, but there's a lot of sadness, a lot of darkness in inside alcoholism and is it kind of touching on that as well? It's funny because when you say an alcoholic makes you think comic, I think most people think grim. The play is, like a lot of my work, this mixture of humour and painful things and loving things. That's the only way I know how to write, but I also think that it's true to write that way. Shooting off from there, the other characters, how are they working in this relationship are they looking for surrogates to replace him in some way yeah so the the so the central female character well there's two central female characters but Therese the woman who's employed as the carer is recently out of jail she's full of shame um she's desperate she'll be homeless if she loses this job so she's got to work really hard to keep this job um and then, and, and in a way, she finds all these things she needs from him and vice versa. But his daughter, the, of, of his eight children, the eldest one is the only one who does anything for him anymore, but she keeps herself very removed from him. She just does what's necessary. Um, she's a very wounded character but very armoured up. You know, she's, in, she's, a, she's a, a banker. She's independent but deeply, deeply wounded by this man. So for her to see this this sort of scraggy young woman having this lovely father-daughter relationship with her father is, uh, there's mixed feelings, shall we say. Like she's thrilled to see that her father is off the booze and finding new uh, qualities in himself, but it's, it's, it's distressing, it's, it's upsetting. Um, and the carpenter who comes to work on the house is smitten. I can't. I always have to have a love story in everything I do. Um, <laughs> he's smitten with um, Therese, but he's a bit deeply decent man, but who's been wronged by the world and has very low. Most of my characters have terrible low self esteem. I don't know where that comes from. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's interesting because I'm not. Even though at times the Leo Bailey character is a bit of a monster. I'm generally not interested in writing about monsters. I mean, monsters can be fascinating. Like there's lots of fabulous, interesting monsters in in fiction and drama, but I'm more interested in people who are like most of us, you know, flawed, kind of decent, flailing about and hurting each other by mistake. Um, So I always kind of sort of throw those characters into a room together. In the case of Mr Bailey, literally a room, um, and and see them hurt each other and sometimes kind of find their way to um, connection. And, of course, there's always humour in that. When people yeah. are flailing about making a mess of things, it's mm-hmm. painful, but it's also very funny, mm-hmm. I think. This, you know, it's nearly almost 20 years since, 
since you wrote it. Are you seeing it differently or have you changing things or is it just kind of going as it was? Look, the main thing I feel is just delight that it's being revived. I mean, not many Australian plays get revived. I mean, you know, there'll be the odd revival of a way, but or one, you know, one day of the year or summer of the 17th doll. But basically we don't have a repertoire in Australia, sadly. No. I mean, this play gets done a lot by amateur companies, which delights me, but this is there's not many revivals of professional by professional companies. So that the main thing to say is surprise. I'm very surprised and delighted. Um, no, um, the director, Damien Ryan, and I decided to change a couple of things to uh, make the play not seem too out of date, like there was a mention of people writing checks and, you know, a few tiny things like that. But actually <laughs> because because it's kind of a low-tech world that Leo occupies and, and they're kind of trapped in this crumbling, strange house, it, it translates pretty well. It, there's not much that I had to change, so... Um, I'm mostly just sitting back and loving what the actors and Damien are doing and and enjoying it. (laughs) Damien is a terrific director too. Well, let's go on to um, the return of your more personal story and it's Is There Something Wrong With That Lady from the 18th at the Ensemble. It it says that you first fell in love with the theatre at 11. Do you remember when that moment was? It was. I mean, my parents used to take me to things um, quite a bit when I was little. Like I went to see Hair when I was 10. Um, I know, scandalous, certainly (laughs) scandalous in Carlingford, um, where we lived. Um, There was one moment I really remember. My parents used to take me to um, the um, uh, Nimrod, which is now the stables, and I used to sit in the front row and there was a production of um, Tooth of Crime and Reg Livermore was dancing around on stage in leather pants. And at one stage he he spun you because in that theatre you could touch the actors if you were yeah. so inclined. And and he spun around and the sweat flew off him and hit me in the face. <laughs> and I just thought, this is the most fabulous world. I want yeah. to be part of this. But I never wanted to be um an actor. Mm, I'm no. Or possibly the world's worst actor. <laughs> um I um I, I wanted to decide what people said on the stage because before that I'd been writing novels, so I guess I liked the idea that I would be the storyteller. Hang on. Before you were 11? I know. Look, I was I was this weird little kid. And also I do think that I was very lucky that I decided to do these things when I was so young. Mm. I didn't understand that you didn't do that. And... Um, and so that by the time my crippling self-doubt really kicked in, I'd already done quite a bit of stuff. Like like pre-puberty, you mm. kind of don't understand that no. the world is judging you and you just kind of get on with it. And I was so excited. I I think I loved stories. Yeah. So the idea that I could tell stories just seemed marvellous and, of course, mm. he would. Were, you, were your family like writers or creatives? Or, no, no, or... no, 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 no. Um, no, um, both my parents um, had limited education and um, great believers in education, um, very sort of fierce about it. Um, I mean, they did take me to the theatre and books were very big in our house. So I guess we were, um, my parents were kind of culture curious, I guess. Um, And they didn't laugh at me. I mean, when I said to them, I want to be a playwright, Mm. they gave me a typewriter for my 12th birthday. So, I mean, 
at the time, I was just delighted that I got a typewriter so that I could now type up my plays. But, you know, when you, when I think about that now, I think most parents, you know, suburban parents would have said to their, you know, 12-year-old daughter, don't be ridiculous, go and do, be qualified as something, you know, mm. more conventional. Like, I mean, the fact that they didn't laugh at me is just, this, you know, mm. was this gift. Yeah. And they heard you, I think, because... These days we are in this sort of helicopter parenting where you, you know, looking at your child and analysing what talents they have. Whereas when I was growing up, I had no direction. Like, my, you know, so I think that kind of really seeing you or hearing you is really terrific. So then you're saying when you became a teenager, all the self-doubt kicked in? Yeah, basically, yeah. Look, you know, my parents were great about me being a writer. They they messed me up in other ways, as all parents do, <laughs> as is as is traditional. So there was plenty of time for all that to be played out. And I had um, terrible anxiety as a child. I was, I mean, from when I was very young, I was a I was a industrial strength hypochondriac. From when I was eight or nine, having to go to the doctor constantly to be told I didn't have stomach cancer or a brain tumor. So I was still playing all that out. And then, you know, the whole world of, 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 you know, of dating and being a girl was, I was a shocking failure. And, and, oh, look, it's one of the things I really talk about in the show. Like, like the reasons why I think I'm worthless, you know, we could spend hours on that. But I mean, I think a lot of people grew up feeling like that for whatever reason, you know, yeah. to do with family or, or brain wiring or who can say. And so it's a question of what do you do about that and how does it kind of play out in your life? And in my case, in all sorts of different ways, but fed into my writing a lot. So um, the, in the show, I talk a lot about my hypochondria. So anyone who's triggered by talk about rare cancers <laughs> should probably not come. No, no, it's fine. Um, <laughs> it sounds hilarious and, and fun. <laughs> You've had so much success, obviously. Does that self-doubt still exist oh god yes and 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 i mean i think the biggest success i feel is that i've lasted as a writer i mean i've never had a proper job i finished university and made my living as a writer from then on so i've been a writer for 43 years made a living mm. as a writer for 43 years wow and i made my first income as a writer when i was 17 but i think the thing that that people maybe forget and i i forget too when i look at other people, when I look at actors or musicians, you see the moments when things are on, when they're mm. in a show or a play is on or something is happening for them, but you don't see the bits in between. You don't see the years when someone couldn't get cast or couldn't sell their record or whatever. And so I've had long periods of time when, you know, I've struggled. I mean, I've always made a living because I jump around between television and fiction and theatre. But there were long, long periods of time when I couldn't get a play on, um, several plays, years and years it took for them to get on. And you don't know that eventually they will go on. You just think yeah. no one wants my work. So um, um, if, you, if, you've got a, a, if you've got a sort of capacity for thinking you're worthless, the theatre certainly helps you. <laughs> Um, channel that feeling um, um, so although I can see look at my CV and think it looks you know like someone with a reasonable level of success it hasn't always felt like that year year to year moment to moment um, 
And the trick is you're so at the mercy of other people, you know, good or bad. And 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 the the trick, which I sometimes can manage, but not always, is to not feel at the mercy of that, to let your creative life have its own kind of juice and flow. That sounds really disgusting, doesn't it? But anyway, um, um, without being entirely at the mercy of whether people are praising you or criticising you, rejecting you, giving you a chance. Um, I mean, I think the fact that my biggest success in television, which was Offspring, didn't happen until I was 50 years old. So, you know, like if I'd been 30, it might have messed with my head quite a bit to have a success like that and then nothing for, for years. But because I was 50 by the time it happened, I was a crusty old thing and, and kind of <laughs> understood that the industry is fickle and you you try not to let yourself be judged by it. Mm. Easier said than done. Uh, or carried away by it on the highs and then, yeah, feel the lows. Is there a way to, is there a key to, or what helps you sustain if you were going to give advice to someone? And also the key to success, like is it about being able to do, go from players to TV as a writer or I don't know. Well, for me, the, 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 just the jumping around the media thing, I think that's helped me because um, apart from the fact that it means you can make a living, um, it also means that you you your morale can be kept buoyant because there's always something, if this has been rejected, you can go and work on this other project in another medium that is maybe being kinder to you at the moment or whatever. I think uh, for me that's been helpful. Um um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think I would have kept going as a writer if I didn't have a partner as supportive as my partner. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know how single people do it. I don't, I don't mean financially. I mean emotionally. Um, I've got a couple of really good friends who are writers who live overseas, and we swap, you know, stories and take it in turns to be the one who's feeling down. And the one who does the who does the boosting, you know, that that I think finding colleagues who truly want you to be successful and who and who understand what it's like, but don't also let you whinge too much. There, that's a precious thing. I would always try to find that. Um, and I think I would always have, if if someone's trying to sort of make their way as a writer, always have a love project. Always have a project that whatever else is happening, this is the one that you're writing because you just want to write it. So that if there are gaps when you're unemployed or waiting, you can go, you can think, oh, this is okay because I can go and work on my love project, whatever yeah. it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you said that, you know, I, <laughs> you don't feel like an actor, you're a writer, but yet um, you're the one on stage, right? In I know. How weird is it? I know, I know, I know. Look, look, as a novelist particularly, you, you end up doing quite a lot of public speaking because you have to kind of sell your, sell your books. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... But I never thought of myself as someone as, as a performer. But, I mean, I'm not a performer. Um, but um, I did storytelling um, as part of um, Story Club at the giant dwarf venue that doesn't exist oh, anymore. yes, 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 yes. And I, I just loved it. I mean, the first time I did it, I thought I was going to vomit. I was so nervous. It was like skydiving. It was like skydiving in the sense that <laughs> I thought I was going to vomit. And when I hit the ground safely, I thought, I've never felt so alive. <laughs> so um, I discovered that I loved that. And then I happened to see a couple of stage performances where it was just a person talking as themselves, showing a few slides. 
and very simple. And I thought, oh, that's very enjoyable. And I think I could do that. I think I could do that. And there's part of me that also thought, I'm an old dame. I just want to tell people my version of things. There's something very satisfying about that, especially when you've had a lot of work that hasn't reached an audience. The idea that I write something, I tell people in front of me, and they can like it or not like it, they can laugh or not laugh, whatever. Um, the direct kind of transaction or something was like rocket fuel. I just thought, and I pitched it to Lee Lewis, who was then the artistic director of Griffin, and she said yes, and then we were COVID cancelled. But then a year later, there I was standing in the tiny dressing room at the Griffin, which is basically literally, literally a toilet. I'm standing <laughs> in the toilet and so scared, I thought, what am I doing? I could faint from nerves. I volunteered for this. I have no one to blame but myself, but I had to do it. So I stepped out there and it was great. Like when you get stuff back from an audience, it's there's nothing like it really. It's very energising and um, and just to directly say, look, here's some things that I think. Here are some stories. Here am I being a ridiculous, desperate virgin. Here am I being a junior hypochondriac. Here am I being a, you know, desperate playwright, whatever. Um, what do I? What, what do you think? The play is also about the show. I shouldn't say the play. It's not a play. The show is also about the question that I ask at the beginning of the play is what drives people to write? You know, what are the motivations? So I examine the motivations. You know, is it fear of death? Is it the desire to get more offers of sex? Is it to <laughs> fill the vast psychic hole of shame within people? So I kind of, with humour, but also kind of ser semi-seriously, I look at, well, how does that all work? So yeah. um, that's the kind of thread, if there is one. <laughs> Do those come from the stories that you did at the Giant Dwarf? Any of them? A couple, there's a couple that I, there's a couple of sections where I used bits that I'd used a giant dwarf, yeah. So I guess they'd been road tested on an audience. Um, when, I, when I started trying to put it together, mm. I, there, were, there did seem to be a logical through line about what it's like to be a writer in Australia for 40-something years, particularly a female writer, what it's like. Mm. Um, and has that changed over those years for women? I think it has, um, I think it's certainly changed in the theatre since my time. But so I, I'm more optimistic now for, for women writers, but too late for me. You know, I feel like I'm a bruised old dame mm -hmm. and the theatre, I don't write theatre anymore. Um, it, it, it broke my heart. So um, I write television and novels now. Um, was there a moment? What was that breaking? Breaking? Um, a series of moments, really. And then, I mean, in the show I talk about, like, the therapy that led me to decide that's it, no more plays. Really? Um, um, yeah, I just think it's a it's a, a, a self-protective issue for me and um, that's, that's fine. Look, the thing is I've written a lot of plays. Like I've written, like, quite a few plays for adults. I've got four plays for kids that get done by schools often and that brings me so much joy. The idea that there are children out there, teenagers out there, discovering those characters, thinking about those stories is 
like such a privilege. You know, I feel so lucky. So I guess the, the playwright in me is still, she's still there somewhere. But that, but but she certainly doesn't want to try and write new plays and send them to theatre companies who will treat, who generally treat playwrights like dirt. It's an amazingly rude world, the theatre. They think that they're terribly busy, in in a way where you just think, do you not know what other industries are like? Do you not know that other people are quite busy and still manage not to treat people like dirt? Mm. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't go into. Oh, look, I... I'm trying to encourage people to come to the theatre. I know. Well, (laughs) I was going to ask you, actually, is there some kind of healing through doing this production or doing this show, let's say, on the stage? I don't know. I just think there's the healing of you just... Here's my story. What do you think? But, look, having said that, having just been nasty about the theatre, not nasty, grumpy about the theatre, there is something special about it, you know? Like, for me, it's opening night with Mr Bailey's Minder, and for me to sit in that audience and have people meet my characters a few metres away from them and engage with that story and laugh or gasp or lean forward because they're worried about the characters, that's extraordinary. The sort of ritual of us all being in that room together and and it's like that's the one and only telling of the story that night and we're there together and so... I think humour lands more powerful when you're all together. Painful moments when they're shared with other audience members are multiply in a way that I don't know the, the equation, but by a lot. Um, there's nothing like that. And the thing that I fell in love with as a child is still there. Um, and, 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 in fact, that's what's so delightful about um, Mr Bailey's mind going on again, that I, I'm reminded of that. Um, and it's um, it's it's fantastic. It, it feels like a kind of blessing. Yeah, there's nothing like it in in the theatre when yeah to be moved as a group. You you said in your personal show that you at the beginning of it you asked the question why do we write or why do writers write in Australia? Why do you write? Do you find an answer by the end? Do you solve that? <laughs> and do you ask the audience? To engage with you along the way, I get a sense of that, but I'm not sure. No, there's no, there's no audience participation. No, Hopefully, okay. Um, and, and you know what? When it was on the uh, two years ago, sometimes non-showbiz people in the audience would be would 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 be disbelieving. Would go, no, surely that's not how it works. And their showbiz friends sitting next to them would go, yeah, yeah, that's how it works. She's telling you the truth. Anyway, um, um, I, I. I think the reasons I write are a mixture of the various things I talk about in the show um, and just a love of stories. So as a consumer, I love stories. I like being told stories in all different media. And so the idea that I get to kind of have a crack and throw my own stories into the great sort of pool of stories seems wonderful, like a thing I want to do. Last question. What was that first thing you wrote or got paid for when you were 17? Well, it's not the first thing I wrote. The first thing I wrote, I wrote lots of very, very bad plays. Um, <laughs> um, um, and when I was 15, I sent one of them to John Bell, who was very oh. kind to me. Uh, I know. I put it in an envelope and posted it off. Um, so the play that was, um, there, there was a play that was done at the Playwrights Conference when I was 17 and then I sold it to ABC Radio. And it was called, are you ready? This The title will tell you what a dreadful play it was. It was called The Two-Way Mirror. 
I mean, I think the idea that it was an earnest play by sort of, you know, <laughs> ang angst-ridden teenage girl. It's all there in the title, isn't it? Oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> it's, been, it's been lost. It was The last copy was lost in the, a flood under our house. So no great loss, I say. <laughs> <laughs> but it got me started. Look, I was hoping for a return of that. In the meantime, there are other plays of yours to come and see in shows. Thank you, Deborah Oswald. Thank you, Gina. Terrific to chat with you. Well, that was Deborah Oswald with Mr. Bailey's Minder on until the 2nd of September. And from the 18th of September, you can catch her in Is There Something Wrong With That Lady? And that'll be playing to the 14th of October at the Ensemble. 